Well, good morning, Redemption Hill Church family, and good morning to those of you uh, who don't know us but are watching from afar. Uh, Today is the Lord's Day, and we have gathered, not together, but uh, in isolation in our living rooms or our kitchens. Maybe you're in the family room or even the basement. I don't know where you're at, but today uh, we want to take this time and set it aside to worship Christ and to receive from his word. So would you join me in prayer as we prepare to open God's word together? Let's pray. God in heaven, we praise you. Uh, You are the only God, the holy God, who rules in justice and in power and in splendor over all things, nations and nature, viruses, economies, all of it is completely within your control. And Lord, you are wise and you are good. And so we declare this morning our trust in you. And and we ask that you would display and magnify your glory in our church, in each of our lives individually, and in our nation and in our world right now. Lord, we thank you for your love and your grace towards us. You have related to us as a father and sent your only son. You have forgiven us and adopted us into your family. And that's a privilege and a grace that can never be lost. And Lord, we thank you for the grace of your presence, that you are with us. Even though we are feeling lonely and isolated at times, we know that we can go to the tallest mountain or into the depths of the sea. And even there, you will be with us. So Lord, we ask today that your spirit would work in us and work among us, that you would bring about within our hearts a receptiveness to your truth, that you would enable us to repent of sin and to rejoice in the good news of your gospel. We ask, Lord, that you would renew our faith and strengthen our confidence in your truth as we seek to glorify Christ in all things. So God, be at work now through your word and the preaching of it. Amen. Amen. At all times, ever since the Garden of Eden, Genesis chapter 3, there has been a shadow of fear hanging over the earth, a shadow that looms over every person, every life. It's the reality that death is coming for each and every one of us. As of this morning, according to the CDC, there have been nearly 6,600 deaths in the United States because of this coronavirus. The World Health Organization reports that there are confirmed cases around the globe that now exceed 1 million, with nearly 57,000 deaths. And what this means is is not that more people are dying than usual. The percentage of people who die is today and has always been since Adam's sin, 100%. But what this means is that a lot of people today, including perhaps some of you, are thinking about death and thinking about death more than normal. This virus and this, this, the way it's affected our society, it makes us feel vulnerable, doesn't it? And it reminds us of the inevitability of death. You know, you can wash your hands 50 times a day. You can douse yourself in hand sanitizer. You can wear a mask. And you can even avoid this virus. But someday, you and I will both die. For many people, this reality, the inevitability of death, is a frightening thing. And it's frightening for some because of the unknown. What's on the other side? What happens after death? We who trust Christ and believe his word know the answer to that question. It is appointed unto man once to die, and after that is the judgment. 
We die and we stand before Christ, who is the judge of all the earth. So to be ready for death means that we must be ready to stand in that judgment. Are you ready for that? Are you ready to stand before Christ, the judge? In the gospel, we have hope. We have hope for that day, hope for the day of judgment. We have the provision of salvation through Christ, the forgiveness of sin and the cleansing that comes through Jesus' blood. Through his death on the cross, we can have reconciliation with God. We can stand before him justified, righteous, adopted into his family. And this means for us that death is gain, to use the words of the Apostle Paul. Death is gain for us because death is going to be followed by resurrection and by eternal joy. This hope of salvation, this hope even in the face of death, is a gift of grace that is received by faith. So of utmost importance today is this question. Have we received this gift of salvation? Do we possess saving faith? The troubling reality is that there are some who believe that they have this salvation. There are some who presume that they have that they have this kind of faith, this saving faith, and that they are indeed ready to stand before the judge. But in reality, there are some, though they believe they have faith, they are in fact deceived. And the reason that they will not be able to stand in the day of judgment is because they have a faulty faith, a futile faith, a counterfeit faith that cannot save because it is dead and powerless. This is the problem that James addresses in James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. If you're not already in the book of James, I invite you to turn there now with me. James chapter 2, verses 14 through 26. This section in James chapter 2 can be understood as really an expansion of a point that James has already made in chapter 1, verse 22. There, he urges us to be doers of the word and not hearers only. Because if that's the case, if we are hearers but not doers, James says we have deceived ourselves. James is concerned that we not be deceived into thinking that we are right with God, thinking that we have salvation, when in reality, we may not. This is crucial as we prepare to stand before Christ on the day of judgment. Last week, we saw that James has this judgment always in mind. He urged us to, be, to, to speak and act as those who are to be judged under the law of liberty, verse 12. In verse 13, he acknowledges the reality that judgment is coming. It's without mercy to those who've shown no mercy, but mercy triumphs over judgment. If you're ready to face that judgment, in order to be prepared for that day, you must have saving faith. So I'd like to walk through this text this morning and sort of summarize James's argument into three questions. Three questions will be our three points this morning. James asks a lot of questions, a lot of rhetorical questions in this section. So I've sort of formulated our our outline accordingly. The first question and your first point this morning is what we find in verses 14 through 17, and it's this. Is a verbal profession enough to save? Is a verbal profession, saying that you believe with your lips, enough to save? Look in verse 14. James says, What good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith but does not have works? Can that faith save him? James addresses his readers here as brothers. 
he's writing to the church, to people within the church. This letter likely would have been read wherever believers were gathered that he was writing to. And James is confronting the fact that not all who were visibly attending the church were truly Christians. There were some who have made a verbal profession, who were with the church as it gathered, but nevertheless were lacking genuine saving faith. And so he brings up this hypothetical question, one that no doubt was inspired by true events. And he says, in in essence, what should we think about a professing believer, but a professing believer who does no good works? Notice in verse 14, the little word says, what good is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith? James is not asking if someone has faith but does not have works. He's asking if someone claims to have faith but does not have works. And then asks the question, can that faith, that kind of faith, save? Really, James is helping us to think critically here and pointing out that there are two kinds of faith. There's the kind that saves and the kind that doesn't. And the key distinction between them is that one produces good works and one does not. The grammatical structure of his question here anticipates and and invites a negative answer. Can that kind of faith save him? The obvious answer that he wants us to see is no, it can't. You can profess faith, but not truly possess it. He shows us how pointless a mere verbal profession of faith is in verses 15 through 17. He says, if a brother or sister is poorly clothed and lacking in daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and filled without giving them the things needed for the body, what good is that? So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Talk is cheap. And verse 17 plainly states James's conclusion, his answer to his own question. Faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. It is lifeless. It is powerless. It is ineffective and therefore unable to save. So what does James mean here in verse 17 when he says faith by itself? This is very important. He's not meaning faith alone in the sense that, that we would recite it in the Reformation uh, language of sola fide, faith alone in Christ alone. He's not meaning faith alone in that sense, rather a faith that is alone. A faith that is literally by itself, meaning that it is a faith, a kind of faith that has no resulting good works, no accompanying good works, no fruit. It is dead. It's dead. He says that kind of faith cannot save. True religion, as we saw in chapter 1, verse 27, is characterized by good deeds, obedience to the will of God, submission to his word, a pursuit of purity. That's what true, genuine religion looks like. So we can flip that around negatively and say that a lack of good deeds, which is disobedience to the will of God, a refusal to submit to his word, a worldly absence of holiness, all of this would be false religion that springs from a useless and a hollow kind of faith, a faith that is powerless to save. So the question, is a verbal profession enough to save? The question that he asks, the clear answer is no. Saving faith is more than an empty claim. It's more than an empty 
claim. So that's the first question we've answered. But secondly, well, okay, not just verbal profession, but what about the content of faith? Is a doctrinal confession enough to save? Doctrinal confession is believing the right things and knowing the right information and even asserting that those things are true. Is that enough to save us? Look in verses 18 and 19. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works and I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. James continues here his imaginary conversation, and he sets up a potential disagreement, one that likely he was aware of in that community of faith, something that some people were thinking and maybe even even proclaiming. And the person he's talking with here thinks, hey, you know what? I'm good. You're good. You know, you have works. I have faith, or I have faith. You have works. You have it your way. I have it mine. Let's just live and let live. You do you, I'm going to be me, and everybody's fine. Your point about good works here, James, is a little bit demanding. He he anticipates that sort of attitude, that sort of spirit, and it's one that perhaps is prevalent in our day and age as well. But James points out that such a claim, a claim to have faith apart from works, that's a claim that's hard to verify. How can you prove that you believe if you'd never act in accordance with those beliefs. You cannot separate the two. That's his point. Faith is shown by works. And this is not just James's bone to pick. We find this same truth taught in the words of Jesus on the Sermon uh, on the Mount in Matthew chapter seven. So much of James's letter here echoes and reflects clear teaching by Jesus in this sermon. In Matthew chapter seven, verse 21, Jesus says this, not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. On that day, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and cast out demons in your name and do many mighty works in your name? And then I will declare to them, I never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of lawlessness. Jesus says, not everyone who professes to know the Lord will enter into the kingdom, but only those who do the will of the Father. Knowing Christ, according to the words of Christ himself, is evidenced by doing God's will. Faith and works, a saving relationship with God and good fruit, they go hand in hand. James knows that the only way you can separate works and faith is if you mistakenly see faith as simply and merely believing a few statements of what is true. So James goes on to point out the futility of merely assenting to true statements about God. He illustrates this in verse 19. He says somewhat sarcastically, you believe that God is one? That's a doctrinal profession, a theological statement. He says, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. The phrase God is one was a cherished Jewish statement of faith in Yahweh, the one true God. It was a hallmark of their theology, and it comes directly from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4, what was known as the Shema, which is the Hebrew word for hear or listen. Shema, listen, O Israel. And, and this was something that set them apart from all the surrounding nations. The nations surrounding the children of Israel were polytheistic and pagan. 
they worshiped many gods, but the God of Israel, the Lord, Yahweh, is one, one God. So to bring this up as an illustration was somewhat so, would have been somewhat sobering for this, these people. The illustration is scary, even as it is obvious. James points out, you know, you can affirm the Shema, that God is one and there is one God. But you know what? The demons believe that same truth. They know that that's true and they don't disagree. There are no atheist demons. There's no such thing. In fact, the doctrine of fallen angels, their understanding of what's real and what's true is probably more precise even than ours because they've seen the glory of God. They've witnessed his power unfolding throughout history. They've observed his sovereign works and they've had thousands and thousands of years to understand what's in this book. And this, in fact, is why they tremble. It's why they shudder. It's why they quake in fear and the hair on the back of their neck, as it were, bristles when they think about who God really is. They believe God is more real than even we do. But knowledge of correct information, James points out, is not salvific. That cannot save you. James says, you believe the sacred truth about God, that he is one, good for you, but don't feel too proud of yourself because even the enemy believes that. Truth in your head does not equal salvation in your heart. You see, the tricky part is you can get the first part of the Shema right and totally forget the second part. Deuteronomy 6.4 says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And the very next words that Moses pens are these. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. The necessity of the heart in a saving relationship with God. This is not just a James thing. It's not just a Jesus thing. It's not just a New Testament thing. This is what was required in the law. Since the beginning, God has desired that his people love him with their whole heart. Unsurprisingly, this emphasis on the heart is prevalent in the New Testament as well. Romans chapter 10, verse 9, Paul writes, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart, one believes and is justified. And with the mouth, one confesses and is saved. What is required of us is more than mental agreement with theological truth, but a heart that embraces it. One commentator, C.L. Mitten, writes, it is a good thing to possess an accurate theology. We say amen. But it is unsatisfactory unless that good theology also possesses us. Genuine faith, saving faith, includes knowledge of the truth, but also an affirmation that it is good and a personal trust in it. This is a matter of the heart. This is a believing and a faith that springs from the heart and it results in good works. You see, the demons have knowledge, but their hearts are hostile to God. So they continue in their rebellion against him. We must be careful not to follow suit. Question, is correct doctrinal confession enough to save? No. Saving faith is more than shallow conviction. It's more than mental assent. It's more than simply affirming certain propositions about God 
and even about the gospel. So this leads us to our third question this morning. Then what does saving faith look like? If it's, if it's not just a verbal profession, and if it's even more than mental, mentally agreeing with certain truths, what does saving faith look like? This brings us to verse 20. James writes, Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? At this point, James assumes that if you still disagree with him about his point that faith and works go hand in hand, if you still disagree at this point, you're simply being foolish. If you still disagree, you're like the fool in Proverbs who refuses correction and hates instruction because he's already convinced in his own mind that he knows everything. So James speaks with a word of rebuke. Do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works is useless? And to drive home his point and to show us what genuine saving faith really looks like, he uses two familiar illustrations from Israel's history. And he uses these two characters as examples of people who demonstrate living faith, genuine faith, the kind of faith that saves. He speaks of Abraham and Rahab. Abraham was the great ancestor of Israel, the patriarch, the father of the faith. Rahab was an outsider, a Gentile, a very surprising character who actually ends up joining the people of God and being part of the lineage of Christ. Both believed in God and both demonstrated that belief through radical acts of faith. They trusted and obeyed God even in incredibly, different, uh, in incredibly difficult situations. And James shows us by pointing at the history of Israel that true faith, saving faith, will transform anyone, whether a patriarch or a prostitute. Look in verses 21 through 26. James asks, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works, and faith was completed by his works. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness and he was called a friend of God. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. And in the same way was not also Rahab the prostitute justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them out by another way? For as the body apart from the spirit is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. James reminds us of Abraham, the friend of God. Abraham was called out of Ur and called to leave his home and go to a new place that God would show him. And he was given a promise of a son and of many descendants and of land and of great blessing. And when God did give him a son, when Isaac was born, God asked Abraham to sacrifice his only son, Isaac, on an altar. And amazingly, Abraham obeyed. He obeyed what would have seemed to him unthinkable and even illogical in light of the promises of God in his love for his son. Abraham laid his son on the altar and even raised the knife to slay his son until God stopped his hand as the angel spoke and said, now I know that you fear me. Verse 21 here in James chapter two points to Abraham, the father in the faith and uses him as an example of good works. James says Abraham was justified by these good works. He also brings up Rahab. Rahab was a resident of Jericho, a city, a pagan city that was in the land of Canaan that was soon to be overthrown by the approaching armies of Israel. 
Moses had died. Joshua was their new commander, had led them through the Jordan River, and they were spying out the land. And this woman, Rahab, chose to side with the people of God rather than her countrymen. She aided and abetted the two spies and risked her own life in the process. And James says she, like Abraham, was justified by her works. Now, this language raises some red flags for us and and even some really big questions. What does this mean that they were justified by works? Does this not contradict what we read in Romans? Romans chapter 3, verse 28, Paul writes, For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. This apparent contradiction is serious, and it's, it's so troubling that Martin Luther The church reformer once called James an epistle of straw. He assumed it didn't even belong in the Bible because he couldn't see how it could possibly agree with the clear teaching that we are justified by faith apart from works, the teaching Paul lays out in Romans and Galatians and other places. So which is it? Are we justified by faith or are we justified by works? And how do these two authors, James and Paul, not contradict one another? Well, what we need to recognize this morning, and I think what will give us clarity, is that James and Paul are speaking to different audiences who have different problems at different points in time. And they are using this term, justification, therefore, differently. This word can sort of have a range of meaning, and they're using it in different ways. Paul writes to Gentile believers in Rome while James is writing to the Jewish dispersion, believers from Jerusalem who've been scattered by persecution. Paul was arguing that you cannot earn salvation through your obedience to the law. James is arguing that salvation is verified on the other end by our subsequent good works. So Paul writes about the powerlessness of good works before conversion, and James is writing about the priority of good works after conversion. And both are correct, and both are necessary. The word justify, when used by the Apostle Paul, refers to how a person is made right with God, how one enters into a saving relationship with God. And Paul's point is that sinners receive the gift of salvation, meaning that we're made alive and we're forgiven and we're saved and declared righteous through faith. Ephesians 2, verse 8 and 9 says, By grace... You have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one may boast. Paul says salvation is not a result of the good works that we do leading up to that point of salvation. He says in Romans chapter 3, verse 24, that we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. The sacrifice that God demands, the payment God demands was made by Christ. We don't contribute through our good works. We simply receive his gift of grace by faith. That's how Paul is using the word justified, that we are declared to be righteous and saved on the basis of what Christ has done, not on the basis of our good works. This happens at the point of conversion. When we repent and believe, we receive this grace and we are justified. 
But James is using this term justify to describe something that happens after our conversion, after we enter into a saving relationship with God, to describe the proving of our faith. Remember that James often has the final judgment in view. Every chapter in this book references the last day, the final day when God will judge. Our good deeds or our lack thereof will be examined on that day. And they will be the evidence that is put on the table to demonstrate whether or not the faith we possess is genuine or counterfeit. In this sense, Abraham was justified by his works. God looked upon Abraham's obedience, his radical trust and obedience as he placed his son on the altar. And God verified that his faith was indeed genuine. He said, now I know that you fear me. His righteousness was made evident before all by his works. James shows in other places that he believes the same thing that Paul believes. He agrees that we enter into uh, salvation. We enter into a right standing before God by grace through faith. Salvation is a gift we receive through faith. Look in chapter 1, verse 21. He says, Therefore put away all filthiness and rampant wickedness and receive with meekness the implanted word, which is able to save your souls. We are saved through receiving the truth of the gospel, the truth we find in scripture. You can look in chapter five, verse 15. And James writes, the prayer of faith will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Salvation and forgiveness is received through faith. It's not a result of our good works. No, even in our our text here this morning in chapter two, he clarifies specifically in verse 23 that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. The word believe there is the verbal form of the word that's translated faith. It's the same root. So literally we could say that Abraham faithed in God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was declared to be positionally righteous before God because he believed not because of his good works. James agrees with that. In verse 22, he explains what he is trying to say, that faith was the energizing power behind Abraham's works. He says, you see in verse 22, that faith was active along with his works. Faith was the engine or the motor that was spurring on and producing his obedience and his good works. And Abraham was declared Therefore, to be positionally righteous because he believed, but he was shown to be growing in righteousness. To use James's words here, faith was completed. It was brought to its fullness as he obeyed, as he laid out his son on the altar. So Abraham's obedience, his good works, was itself simply an expression of the saving faith he already possessed. And this is what the author of Hebrews points out as well. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 17 says, By faith, Abraham, when he was tested, offered up Isaac, and he who had received the promises was in the act of offering up his only son, it says, laying him on the altar because he believed that God was able to raise him from the dead. Hebrews holds up Abraham as an example of faith. And the author of Hebrews does the same with Rahab. In chapter 11, verse 31, it says, By faith, Rahab, the prostitute, did not perish with those who were disobedient, because she had given a friendly welcome to the spies. Abraham, Rahab, their faith was expressed and demonstrated by their obedience. 
So when James concludes in verse 24 that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone, again, we need to understand what he means by faith alone. He does not mean faith as opposed to works. He means a faith without works when he says faith alone, a faith that is alone. James is in full agreement with both Jesus and the Apostle Paul. Romans chapter 2, verse 13, Paul, who holds up justification by faith. So often, Paul writes, it is not the hearers of the law who are righteous before God, but the doers of the law who will be justified. Hearers, doers, and justification, it sounds like Paul and James agree, doesn't it? They do. There is no contradiction. James concludes his argument with the point that just like a body with no spirit and no breath and no pulse is dead, so also faith apart from works is dead. And that dead faith cannot save you. So what does saving faith look like? We have a great example with Abraham and Rahab. Saving faith, James says, is alive. It is active and it is expressed or evidenced through good works. So James's premise is that there is a kind of faith that can save and a kind of faith that cannot. One is visible and one is not. So if you cannot see your faith, if it is not evident as you examine your life, that's probably because it isn't there. It's lacking. Three times we see this diagnosis. In verse 17, faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. In verse 20, faith apart from works is useless. Verse 26, faith apart from works is dead. So we need to get personal here. Let me ask you, does your faith have a pulse? Are your spiritual lungs, as it were, working and functional? Are you breathing in God's grace in the gospel? Breathing in God's grace as you sit under the teaching of the word, as you participate in worship, as you enjoy fellowship with other believers? And then are you breathing out throughout the week? showing mercy and compassion to those in need, giving and sacrificing to the Lord, serving him and obeying him and seeking to be pure and distinct from the world. Most of you who are listening this morning profess to have faith. It's probably why you're willing to sit through a 45-minute sermon on a Sunday morning. But professing to have faith, James says, is not enough. Many of you believe the right things about God, and I'm thankful for that. In fact, many of you have quite a bit of theological knowledge, but James warns us even that is not enough. Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 13, examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. It's a good thing for us to take some spiritual inventory and to examine our hearts, examine our faith, and see if we truly possess the real thing. Perhaps you're feeling the conviction of the Holy Spirit this morning, that your faith has been all talk and no walk, that your faith consists of agreeing with a few propositions, but it has no roots in your heart and is not manifesting itself in a changed life. If the Holy Spirit is convicting you this morning and revealing to you that your faith is dead and useless and cannot save, let me plead with you, do not harden your heart against the conviction of the Holy Spirit. But also, if you are feeling that conviction and you recognize that good works are missing from your life and genuine faith is missing, don't attempt to fix everything by just adding more good works. 
That's not the right response to that recognition that you do not have saving faith. What you need is not more good works. What you need is real faith. The good works will follow. You need a genuine faith, the kind that will produce good works. You need the kind of faith that is alive and has the power to cause you to take steps of radical obedience, like putting your only son on the altar because you believe God's promise and because you're willing to obey him no matter what. You need a faith like Abraham's faith. You need the kind of faith that fears God so much you're willing to obey him above all earthly powers. You're willing to risk your life even because of your higher allegiance to God than to any human or any human institution. You need a faith like Rahab's. You need a faith that is not just professed with the mouth, not just grasped with the mind, but a faith that springs from the heart. And the good news I have to share with you this morning is that God gives this kind of faith out of his abundant grace. Ephesians 2 verse 8 says, By grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God. It's a gift of God. The truth of the gospel is this. It's that you're not saved because of your obedience to the law. You are not forgiven of sin and adopted into God's family because of your performance. No, the truth of the gospel is that Jesus Christ, the Son of God, took on flesh. And after living a perfect life, he hung on a Roman cross in our place because God loved you and sent Jesus there. And God was well pleased to crush him for our sake so that sinners like you and me can be reconciled to a holy and righteous and omnipotent God so that we could be counted righteous because of Jesus, not because of anything that we do. Our sin was laid upon the shoulders of Christ and his obedience to the law, his good works, his righteousness was credited to us. Our faith is simply the wholehearted, empty-handed, fully dependent, grasping onto this good news. It's trusting in Jesus. That's what faith is. Looking to Christ and to Christ alone as our very life, as our salvation. James says that kind of faith, if you have it, it shows. If you sense that you are far from God today, that you lack saving faith, then before you think about any good works, what you need to do today is cry out to God and ask for his mercy. Trust in his promise that he will save and justify all who look to Christ in faith. May he grant you the faith to live a life of radical obedience before him. And for those who do possess saving faith, those who do believe and those who do have evidence, not that they're perfect, but there is real evidence in their life that they've been changed by God. May we hear this text today as an exhortation to, to praise God for his grace, to thank him for what he's given us, and then to live it out, to live out our joy and our peace and our gratitude and our love for God, to demonstrate our trust in him by obeying him and by bearing good fruit that will glorify him and give evidence to all of the grace that it is work that is at work within us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we are thankful today 
that we are not saved because of our good works. We're saved because of Christ. Through faith, we are made one with Christ. Through faith, our sins are forgiven and his righteousness is wrapped around us. We are clothed in his righteousness. We rejoice in that truth today. The truth that James points out, that Abraham believed and it was credited to him as righteousness. But God, I pray that you would protect us from the faulty assumption that as long as we mentally agree with things that are in the Bible, that we are somehow okay. I pray, Lord, that we would look into our own hearts and at our own lives today and examine ourselves and to see if there is evidence of saving faith. I pray, Lord, for those who are deceived, that today you would show them that they are not right with you, that they do not have salvation. I pray that you'd convict them of their sin and show them the uselessness of trying to do good things to somehow get into your good graces. I pray that today they would cry out for mercy and come to Christ and depend fully on him. And Lord, for those today who do know you, but perhaps this text has shaken them. Perhaps they are struggling with assurance and Satan wants to twist these words from James and use this text to rob them of the peace and the joy that is rightfully theirs. I pray that they would not look to their good works for assurance, but rather they would look to Christ. And I pray that you would help them to see, that you would point out to them by your spirit, the evidence that is in their life of saving faith. Not that they're perfect, Not that they don't have any struggles or areas of weakness, but I pray that you would give assurance to them today that they would see the good fruit and that they would look beyond their own actions to Christ and simply continue holding on to his promise. Lord, for all of us who know you, I pray that you would strengthen our resolve today to live out our faith so that others may see um, the hope that we have, especially now during this time of uncertainty in the face of death, I pray that those around us who don't know Christ, those who aren't ready to die and stand before the judge, that they would see in us a confidence, that they would see good fruit and good works that that point to our faith in you, a saving faith. Lord, use our faith. May it be a lamp that is lit, that shines brightly, not hidden under a bed, not put under a basket, but shining brightly for all to see. Use us, Lord, for your glory in this season. We pray all this, Jesus, in your name. Amen.